Hi, this is Dave Spray, and welcome to another episode of the IC Disc Show. I just had a great interview with John Warlow, who is a uh, best-selling author, speaker, entrepreneur, and it was a fascinating uh, interview that I've, I found to be really enjoyable, and I hope you do as well. All right. Today on the podcast, I have somebody who I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. Uh, today, our guest is John Warlow. And to have a little uh, background on John, John is a successful entrepreneur who started and exited four companies, one of which was a public company uh, that acquired his business. He's a best-selling author and has just released his third book. He's the founder of the Value Builder System. He also hosts a very successful podcast that he's done for the last five years. And uh, on a more personal note, he lives with his family in Toronto. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Good to be with you. Yeah. So uh, I've wanted to have you as a guest on the show uh, for a long time, probably going all the way back uh, to when I read your first book, uh, probably eight years ago, uh, Built to Sell. And uh, I believe it or not, I've probably listened to at least 200 of your 250 uh, podcasts. So it's... Uh, You're glutton for punishment, my friend. <laughs> I am at that. I am at that. So uh, you hold a couple firsts. Uh, you're my first Canadian guest. And you might oh, also you be go. my first uh, guest uh, who was born in England. So why don't we just start with that? Did you move to Canada as a child or an adult? I did. My, my parents uh, emigrated from England to Canada when I was five. So I, I really don't have many memories. I do have some family over there, though, and get over there once in a while. But, uh, but home's Toronto now. Okay. And so uh, and you attended college in Canada, I take it? I did. Here's a fact that is astonishing. Elon Musk went to Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario for one year at the same time I was there. I never met the man. <laughs> but I think it's great to be able to share that as my alumni. The Queens, by the way, I took sociology, which is, you know, the, the most ridiculous <laughs> program you can possibly imagine. So I'm in no way comparing myself to Musk, but I think it's funny that, that while I was, you know, studying girls at, uh, at Queens, he was, he, was, uh, he was studying engineering, which is uh, pretty impressive. That's awesome. You know, I have a similar uh, kind of touch with greatness. So, I was at the University of Texas in Austin at the same time as Michael Dell, founder of Dell Computers. Wow. And we were there at the same time in the same dorm. I'm sorry, he was at a different dorm. But we were there at the same time. And uh, IBM had a theory, so this was 1983, that if you could uh, get somebody hooked on IBM PCs, they would buy IBM PCs for life. So as a result, they had a little uh, a little. Uh, storefront on campus where they sold computers at well below wholesale to the students. So while the other 50,000 students ignored it, Michael Dell started buying these IBMs for below wholesale and then marketing them between wholesale and retail. And that was how he got started with Dell computers. Yeah, that's wild. Did you buy a computer from him? I didn't. I, well, I mean, late years later, uh, but uh, yeah, no, no, not, at, not at the time. Not at the time. So, um, so I believe you graduated in 1994 from Queens College. Is that right? Uh, yeah, 
I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. And did you start your entrepreneurial career right after college, or did you uh, did you go to the salt mines for a few years before you broke loose? <laughs> Funny you should mention salt mines because I went to work in a little town called Sudbury, Ontario, which is known as the nickel mining capital of the world, uh, okay. or of North America. I and I'm I'm not a miner, nor did I mine in Sudbury, but it, but I worked to work in radio, actually. I uh, I was involved in radio and, and had a kind of idea for a show. This goes back in the early 90s. Uh, the show was to interview a different entrepreneur every week and say, kind of, what did you learn? What, you know, what would you do differently? And the radio station said, that's a crappy idea that'll never work. And so like in... <laughs> Most cases where uh, where people get challenged like that as a young person, I decided that I would prove them wrong, and so I left Sudbury and I went back to my hometown of Toronto and and uh, kind of came up with the idea for the show, called it Today's Entrepreneur. Again, this goes back way before podcasts, et cetera, and uh, pitched it to a, a, a syndication company in Toronto, and and ultimately got the show nationally syndicated in Canada. We were on 22 stations and it was called Today's Entrepreneur. And we just interviewed a different entrepreneur every day and, and asked them if you'd known then what you know now, what would you have done differently? And that's what got me interested in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs, just uh, all those stories from different entrepreneurs all those years ago. Oh, wow. I did not realize that, uh, that part of your story. So that's, uh, so you've been interviewing entrepreneurs a lot longer than the five years ago that you started your podcast, haven't you? It's funny because it feels a little bit like deja vu, like uh, Groundhog Day, because, yeah, well, I started my career in interviewing entrepreneurs, and now I'm 25 years later doing it again. So, uh, But it's fun. you know. I've got a chance to interview uh, 300 or so business owners who have sold their company, and um, it's such an emotional uh, experience that it's been fun for me because I asked these guests kind of about the last chapter of their journey, the sales of their business. And there's very little out there. I mean, you've seen this, David. I mean, I'm sure in your work, there's a ton of of information about how do you start a business? How do you build a business? How do you market a company? But very little on how to exit one. So that that was the uh, the niche that, that uh, I chose to focus on with Built to Sell Radio. That's uh, that's awesome. And uh, so and then I guess you launched your own business in 97. Uh, was that the what the today's entrepreneur? Was it under that umbrella while it was your own business? Yeah. So as as is typically the case, these sort of businesses evolve that one out of the out of the next. So the, the syndication company, um, that show was sold and ultimately I went on to start a research company um, and then an event company and then a marketing company. Um, so all of them evolving out of one, out of the next, really. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And then, um, so this is where, you know, to me, I, I'm kind of more familiar with the story starting uh, starting here. So you, you sold the company uh, to a public company, I believe, in 2009. Is that? Does that sound right? Sounds about right. And then, uh, and then you wrote a book, "Built to Sell," that was uh, released, I believe, uh, in 2011. What prompted you, or I guess, first off, what did you do after you sold the company? Did you have to hang around a while, or did you take some time off? Or yeah, you know, we we moved to um, 
we moved to Europe, actually. My, uh, our, we had a young family at the time. We still have a relatively young family, but this goes back to 2009. So my wife and I pulled up stakes. We sold our house in Toronto, and we moved to a little village in France and spent three years there. We put our kids into you know, the local French school and, and, uh, and used that town as a bit of a jumping off point and, and, and sort of traveled all around Europe. And so that's what we chose to do with our sort of um, time after I'd sold my last company. Okay. So did you, did uh, the idea for the book germinate then while you were there in France? Uh, the book built to sell? No, it was yeah. really before, yeah, before, before we left. And it wasn't really written um, with any grand plan per se. I was, uh, I had sold my last company and I was actually having lunch uh, with a guy named Tom Deans, who's written a great book called Every Family's Business. If you haven't read it, it's, it's about the dangers of doing a family business transition. Anyways, it's a great book. And, and Tom and I were, were you know just chatting over lunch. And he said, you know, you've had all these experiences with these four different companies. Um, you know, you should think about writing some of the stuff down. And so I, I did. I went to the, the attic of my house and, and started ty- you know, typing out this parable, this story, uh, which was of an entrepreneur who had a marketing agency, which is one of the four companies that I've been involved in was a, was a marketing agency and, uh, about how he tries to, uh, to transform it from a service-based business to sort of more of a productized company. And, um, and so, yeah, so that was, that was written in Toronto. And, um, and then soon after it was published, we moved, uh, we moved over to Europe. Oh, okay. So that, that was, uh, that was the order. You sold it and then wrote the book and then uh, uh, moved to Europe. That's so were you were in the the book? Uh, it sounds like uh, received a lot of uh, attention. I understand that both Fortune and Inc. recognized it as one of the best business books of 2011. And uh, I also understand it's been translated into 12 different languages. Were you surprised by how successful the book was? In a way, yeah. I mean, it's a niche topic, like building to sell. It's, um, you know, the publisher, the first kind of uh, edition of Built to Sell was self-published. Um, I didn't okay. have a publisher. Didn't, I didn't know anything about writing a book, really. So I, I self-published it. And I was good enough, or I was um, uh, fortunate enough to meet a guy named Bo Burlingham. And Bo sure. and I... Small yeah, giants, I, right? Yeah, that's right. Bo and I wrote um, for Inc. Um, at the time, Inc. Magazine. And Bo, you know, I said, oh, I've written this book. You know, could you take a look at it? And Bo was like, man, you should really get an agent and, and do this seriously because the book's got some likes. And so he was the one who introduced me to uh, my agent, or his agent, I should say. I didn't have an agent at the time. And he introduced me to his agent and um, she said, uh, send me the book. And she actually was the agent that Michael Gerber used to publish his first book, the E-Myth. And so, oh, wow. yeah. So she took it to random house, which is the ultimate publisher of the book and, and said, you know, uh, would you, uh, would you want to publish this? And, and they were a bit skeptical they, for two reasons. Number one, um, the book had already been out there for three or four months. And so they don't usually like picking up, you know, self-published books because obviously the, the initial demand for the book has been fulfilled already. But the other reason was that they were like, nobody sells a company. Like so few people actually, you know, relative to the number of start a company, actually very few people 
sell a company. And so they were the ones who really pushed the subtitle of the book and said, we, we really need to have a subtitle that brings more people into the fold and, and widens the target market for the book. So the original book was called Built to Sell, but when Random House put it out, they added the subtitle, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. And, and I have to credit them for that because for you know, every one business owner who wants to sell, there's probably another hundred that want a business they could sell. And I just emphasize sure. the word could in italics. It doesn't mean you have to want to sell it, it, it but knowing that you're building an asset. And, and, and I think uh, that was a great course correction and maybe played some you know, small role in, in, in the success of the book is that it, it has been more widely adopted uh, because its audience has, uh, is more broad speaking. Okay. So, uh, so then, you know, that's when the, uh, the French sabbatical, I guess, started and you must have been, yeah, you must have been really well rested because you came back, uh, (laughs) uh, with a burst of energy in 2015, as near as I can tell, you had three, uh, separate business initiatives in 2015. Uh, I believe you had your second book, uh, the launch of the podcast and the launch of the value builder system. Is my timing correct? Was that all in the same year? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, the, the automatic customer, which was the follow-up book to built to sell was launched in 2015. You're absolutely right. And, um, and I also launched built to sell radio, which the idea behind that was I was getting a chance to speak to audiences on the back of the built to sell. You know, I, I do EO events or tab events and get asked to speak to entrepreneurs. And, and what I found was the questions, uh, interestingly, pertained less to the theory of building to sell, which was covered in the book, but the questions were more the mechanics of how to sell a company. And so mm. that was a bit of a, uh, almost a contradiction to the original, you know, reason that the, the publisher widened the audience or they added the subtitle to widen the target of the book. But entrepreneurs, I think, really wanted the nitty gritty, the details, right? What, what proportion of your deal was on an earn out? Uh, you know, did you have to finance the buyer? What was the percentage of interest you charged the buyer? Like that kind of detail. And so that's what, what triggered me to want to launch Built to Sell Radio, which was to, to get into the kind of nitty gritty, the mechanics of selling a company. And so that, your, to your point, was 2015. And then um, uh, we also licensed our very first certified value builder in 2015. So the value builder system is where uh, we help entrepreneurs improve the value of their business leading up to an exit, as you know. And, and, uh, and we launched and we licensed our first certified value builder, who, which are independent advisors like yourself who do um, value building as a, as a uh, uh, as an offering for their clients. So that was uh, our first ever group of uh, certified value builders was in 2015. So yeah, it was a busy time for sure. Sure. I can imagine. So why don't we, uh, uh, why don't we kind of go through these, uh, you know, sort of uh, one at a time. So on the, the built to sell radio, uh, yeah. I, one of the reasons I just am so uh, I'm just drawn to, uh, to this is because speaking about something you said earlier, there's not a lot of data uh, and information on when businesses sell because it seems like what happens, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what happens 
is the acquirer is usually a larger company and they do not want the terms made public. And so thus, uh, you just, you know, all that a lot of people know is just XYZ bought ABC business for undisclosed terms. And that's kind of all you hear. Yeah, is that your experience as well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time you see in a, in a press release when, you know, big company A by small company B, it'll say, you know, terms not disclosed, which is basically means that the, the acquisition for the acquirer, if it's a public company, was not material meaning it had no material impact on the shareholders. They didn't need to right. disclose the mechanics of the sale and, and what they paid and what the valuation was, et cetera. If a public company buys a company which is material, uh, it needs to disclose that and to its shareholders. And so big company exits uh, you know, typically are disclosed. Like, for example, one of the people I interviewed for the show was a guy named James Murphy, who sold... A company called Viviscal, which had a treatment for women's hair loss, to uh, CND, which is a, um, a big consumer packaged goods company that competes with you know, Procter and Gamble and others. Anyway, CND had to disclose what they paid for Viviscal and Viviscal's revenue and profits and, and all the details associated, which is which is great because it allows the owner, the founder who sold, to tell me more of the details because it's public information. Uh, that's somewhat of a rarity. So usually on the show, we have to kind of dance around some of those mechanics. Like, you know, the, the guest before I hit record will say, well, I can't tell you the price to which I'll then say, well, could you tell me what multiple of earnings it was? And, and usually we find some way to communicate to the audience, um, you know, some of the more, more important details without getting into any of the, the, the secrets that the acquirer forces the, uh, the owner to remain, uh, to keep uh, as uh, as private. Yeah, and I love uh, one of the things I love about listening to the podcast is so I'm an accountant by training, so I'm always trying to do the math in my head as you're going, and it's uh, it's fun because like sometimes you'll you'll be taught because you ask the questions cleverly cleverly. So, for example, you might for anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast, I'd highly recommend it. Is you might say, okay, I know you can't discuss all the terms. Uh, but like, uh, you know, what did it, you know, you know, what did it sell for as a multiple of EBITDA? And they'll maybe tell you, or they'll maybe say, well, I can't really say that. And then you'll ask, well, what would a typical in, you know, business in your industry trade for as an EBITDA multiple? And they'll say, oh, okay, I can answer that. It's uh, five to eight and you'll be okay. So, uh, did you guys kind of sell, you know, in that range? Sure, sure. But I can't tell you anything more. But you've extracted what we really wanted to hear, which was really just a sense. And then sometimes they'll not say the sales price, but then later, like they'll let slip, like, you know, you'll get into their margins. And so maybe by the end of the podcast, you realize that a uh, typical company in the industry sells for five to eight times EBITDA. They were within that range. They had 20% uh, net margins. And their, uh, you know, their their sales were, you know, in the the ten to fifteen million dollar range. Well, now all of a sudden, using mathematics, you can kind of figure out, a, you know, a range of what it sold for. So they're giving away all my secrets, man. <laughs> oh, that's right. What are your future guests going to do? Well, they yeah, probably won't exactly. listen to this. Uh, <laughs> no, that's that's good, but it's so useful because, like you said, there's no, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to get this information. And, um, yeah, one of the other 
one of the other questions I really like, um, and it's not intended to be like a gotcha question by any stretch of imagination, but it, it is, a, I think, an interesting question, which is, you know, as you were growing the company, what did you think it was going to be worth? Like, not what was it worth and what did you sell for, but what was your assumption? I'm reminded of a, an interview mm. I just live this week, actually. Um, it was built by a guy named Greg Carpenter who sold um, SBI, Sales Benchmark Index. And he was under the impression that his company would trade at around 1 to 1.2 times revenue. And so, you know, he went through the process of bringing in partners into the company, uh, a couple of guys. At that price. Over. Yeah, at yeah, that price. At, at, you know, he just I've already listened company. to it. Yeah. 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 And so he figured it was around one, one, one point two times revenue. And so he gave them a slice of the company or sold it to them. I can't remember which, um, at that valuation. Well, long story short, he sold SBI a $30 million revenue business for $162 million. So while that's a spectacular exit and an amazing achievement, if you're doing the math, you realize he sold for like five or six times revenue. Right. Yeah, selling shares at one time's revenue. And so the guys who he sold shares to got a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah, he referred to that as his $80 million mistake. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, what uh, – and so uh, – okay, so that's that's the, the podcast. I don't want to get spend too much time just on the podcast – and so, but I'd like to turn to the value builder system because I've got to tell you, John, there are two people who have added more value to my business than anyone else on earth. So one is a guy named Ron Baker who wrote a book on pricing professional services. And I read that book about 10 years ago and I've recommended it to, to hundreds of people. And I can honestly say that that, book has made me millions of dollars wow. over the years with what I've learned from pricing professional services. But mm. the, 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 uh, but the other one is you have probably added, you know, untold hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, maybe seven figures to the value of my business based on these same, uh, principles. So, uh, let me just, you know, go ahead and thank you for that. Uh, if you're ever in Houston, I think I, I owe you dinner. I like steak, man. <laughs> good. Well, we have good. Uh, we have a few steakhouses here. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> so, so talk to me about the value builder system. You know, kind of the the, the background, and uh, you know what kind of made you want to start it. Uh, what what's the story? Yeah. So, I mean, if you want the, the, the actual backstory, it was, it was, it was born out of the book built to sell. So when I wrote the book built to sell, I thought like, how am I going to get people to, to buy this thing? And what, you know, how can we market it? And I came up with the idea of a little questionnaire, kind of like a men's health, you know, like when you fill it, there's like, a, a, how fit are you? And the yeah, it's answer 10 questions. It'll tell you if you're sure. fit or whatever. And I came up with this thing called the sellability score which was 10 questions, like how much recurring revenue do you have? How fast are you growing, et cetera? And it would give you a score. And I, I was in Europe at the time and, and, and I started getting calls from brokers in particular and, and some accountants, but mostly brokers saying, hey, we've got this little questionnaire. Can we put this on our website? Uh, that, 
no, but <laughs> that was kind of intriguing. And again, I was I was away and, and not really thinking too much about business, but I was starting to get the itch to do something else. And um, I started to think, well, these brokers want this little questionnaire that I made up on the back of a napkin. There's got to be an appetite for advisors who want a system to kind of talk to their clients about the value of their business. And so that's the the inspiration for everything we do is that little questionnaire. So we 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 launched a a much more robust research-based questionnaire uh, called the Value of the Questionnaire. And that then became the the underpinnings of the entire system. The system's got 12 unique steps. You take uh, owners through and and um, it adds value to to their business. So but it all goes back to that little goofy questionnaire for, uh, <laughs> part of built to sell. Oh, that's uh, that is awesome. I love uh, I love hearing more of the backstory there. In in the thing that um, that's so fascinating, and I, I love the research base to this because my understanding is you've now had is it over sixty thousand businesses complete the questionnaire. We have, and you know what's interesting the the the, the companies that come to us in the beginning. Their average score is 59. And, you know, most hard-charging entrepreneurs, they're used to doing well and lots of lots of things. And so when we tell them they got a score of 59 out of a possible 100, I think sometimes it's disappointing. But those businesses are trading at around 3.5 times pre-tax profit. And you compare that to the folks who go through the system um, score better on each of the drivers. If they can get their score up to 90 out of a possible 100, those businesses on average are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit. So more than double. So there's a, there's a real kind of story embedded in the data that if you focus on these, these, these factors that, that drive the value of your company, it can really improve your outcomes from the sale of your business. And I think even if they only have more moderate success, like they increase the score to a, say an 80, that still has a significant statistical increase in the business value, doesn't it? Yeah, 71% higher than the average performer. Yeah, so getting up to 80 has real, real benefits. And, um, and you know, it's not just the exit. I think a business, you know, if you, if you try to distill all of the things that we do at Value Builder down to the kind of a, a central idea. Um, it's really this concept of building a company that can thrive without you, going back to the original title of the book. It's, it's having a business that has transferable value because it's not dependent necessarily on the owner. And so if you think about that, while it makes the business more valuable, 71% more valuable in the case of someone who scores 80, um, it also gives the owner options. Like they don't have to sell. They could bring in a manager. They could uh, bring in a private equity group and sell them, you know, a percentage of the business. They could, um, they could sell, you know, they could sell it outright. They've got options at that point, and that uh, that puts them in a in a much more kind of powerful position than you know feeling like they have to sell or or, or want to sell, et cetera. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense, and. And to me, the biggest insight over, you know, about your whole system there is that, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is, you know, people that have some familiarity with accounting, finance, uh, business valuation, they understand the concept of EBITDA and EBITDA multiples. And it seems that the solution that if, if somebody goes to an accountant, 
uh, or a business broker and says, hey, uh, we want to sell our business. What's it worth? And, and they ask, well, we want to double the value. What do we need to do? It seems like the answer is always double, double your EBITDA, mm-hmm. right? And uh, But what you discovered, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the uh, that these other drivers actually end up having a bigger impact on the value. In, or said another way, that in some ways, it's easier to increase the multiple than it is to increase the EBITDA. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that and, and what you've discovered? Yeah, for sure. So you're absolutely right. I think a lot of businesses have the view that there's a you know a multiple in my industry and I'm preordained to kind of get that. And and we've seen examples where where owners will you know punch two or three times above their weight class in terms of getting better multiples for their company. And then we've also seen examples where where companies don't get the industry multiple. And so really it comes down to, you know, beyond just the revenue that you have, what is underneath the covers of the business? How are you performing on these eight factors? Like one of the eight factors, as an example, is recurring revenue. And it's a huge driver of the value of your business. So if you look at, for example, security companies these days, they trade um, at different multiples based on the kind of revenue you have. Security businesses, the, the guys who kind of secure your home or your office have installation revenue where they install the keypad. Mm-hmm. You get mm-hmm. about 75 cents for every dollar of that kind of revenue. Because it's one off, it doesn't have a tail to it. And then sure. for those folks who who have recurring revenue in the security space, that's called monitoring revenue. Those businesses are getting about two dollars for every dollar of monitoring revenue. In other words, the recurring revenue is worth like three x to the installation revenue. Right. Not security, but it happens in virtually all industries. And it's one example of how. You know, not all revenue is counts the same in the eyes of an acquirer. And so it's, I think it, it, it does owners a disservice to just myopically focus on, well, my industry multiple is whatever, 5X, and that's what I'm going to get. You could get much better than 5X if you focus on these drivers. Equally, you could get much worse if, if you don't. And so I, 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 you know, I'm a big believer in kind of getting under the covers and seeing what, what the performance are on these eight factors. Yeah, no, that I've found that to be uh, to be very helpful. Now, these these eight drivers. Uh, now, I believe one of them has the title the Switzerland structure. Now, did this come from your time in France, where you visiting <laughs> Switzerland and you had this idea? So, what's uh, yeah, what's the Switzerland yeah. structure all about? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't know that it actually came from. I mean, we did visit Switzerland while we were there, but uh, no, the Switzerland structure, it it basically measures your company's dependence on any one customer, employee, or supplier. And so the backstory is we gave it the name of Switzerland structure because, of course, Switzerland is obsessed with independence, right? They didn't join the world wars. They didn't Send troops to Iraq. They, you know, they don't even use the euro currency because they don't want to be seen as cozying up to any one geopolitical faction, right? And they come under tremendous scrutiny for that. But we gave the name the Switzerland structure because it reminds people of the value of independence, not being overly reliant on uh, any one customer, employee, or supplier. No, that's uh, that's. That's that's great. I love that. Uh, I've always I love that name. And what's the 
and, and what's the the problem with having that um, uh, reliance? Like, could you maybe give me an example of a of a, uh, a situation you've seen where somebody uh, did not have that independence and it really hurt them? Yeah, I mean, for sure. So, you know, supplier dependence is one that is overly, uh, oftentimes misunderstood or, or overlooked. And so most people get the fact that you can't have all your revenue coming from a, just a handful of customers or that you're overly dependent on one superstar salesperson. Like I think most donors sort of get that conceptually. Where I think uh, an often misunderstood area of dependence uh, can often creep in is around suppliers. And so if you're getting all of your supply from just one vendor, it can cause a problem. What if that vendor were to go out of business or change their business strategy, et cetera? I'm reminded of one guy I interviewed. He built a $26 million uh, business in the, in the area of value-added reseller. He, was a, he, was a, he essentially installed phone systems in the businesses. And it was a $26 million business. They used Avaya technology as well as Cisco technology. They were effectively a reseller. But over time, Avaya gave them better and better discounts, longer payment mm-hmm. terms. It just treated them better. And over time, Avaya really started to sop up most of the business in this company. In fact, at the time of the sale, $26 million worth of revenue, like 90% of it was supplying Avaya gear. Well, when this individual went to sell his company, acquirers looked at this business and said, yeah, but you're too dependent on Avaya. What if Avaya changes strategy and goes direct, hires a bunch of salespeople and eliminates its VAR channel? Um, You're out of business. And in the long story, sure, he got, going by memory now, but he got, I think, 3.2 times EBITDA for his $26 million company, which on the surface is not a great multiple for a $26 million business. But again, the reason he had to sort of sacrifice for or just um, you know, accept a lower offer was that he had a Switzerland structure problem, too much dependence on one supplier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great example. Um, you know, you, that also made me think of another episode that you had where the entrepreneur did uh, some type of technology consulting, and they focused purely on AWS, Amazon Web Services. Uh, at least I'm pretty sure it was one of your podcasts, and they intentionally decided not to do. Uh, like the Microsoft product or anyone else, because they wanted that that laser focus. Does that sound familiar, or am I confusing it with? Uh, yeah, the comp- I think the company you're referring to is is Stelligent, and you're absolutely right. That you know, they they uh, they they play in the kind of web ops space. So uh, if you own a website, you need to basically have someone host it, and you can host it through AWS or Microsoft. Uh, I think it's called Azure or Google Cloud. These are all kind of direct competitors. And there are IT consulting companies that basically configure your website to work on one of these platforms. And so what Stelligent decided to do early was focus exclusively on AWS. In the early days, they were using and, and helping people configure for all. The problem was that they had to have lots of employees trained in lots of different platforms and eventually, it just consolidated on AWS. Now, in the case of Stelligent, it worked because they won. The, 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 you know, they 
they, they tied their horse to or wagon to AWS, which was growing like a weed. And they ultimately got acquired because the company they acquired them was looking for more AWS uh, chops. But it could have worked the other way and, and that they were too dependent. So I think there's a, there's a print pro quo. On one end, you're becoming a specialist in, in the case of Stelligent focusing on AWS. That works provided that you know, your acquirer is looking to make more uh, into that space. But it does leave you susceptible to the sort of structure problem I referred to earlier. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, uh, and one of the other drivers that I, I love the name of is the, the teeter-totter, uh, the valuation teeter-totter. So uh, what's that all about? Yeah, teeter-totter refers to, you know, you think of the, the kid's teeter-totter in a, in a playground where the, the big kid gets on and the little kid jumps up uh, on the, uh, the teeter-totter. That's right. the same kind of concept. It's the same concept, but in, 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 in specific terms around cash flows. So the more cash your company generates, the, the less the acquirer needs to invest in working capital. And therefore, the more they can pay you for your company. The opposite is also true. If an acquirer comes along and says, okay, this business looks attractive, but if we buy it, we're going to have to inject a truckload of money in working capital, which is what you need to do when you've got a negative cash flow cycle. In other words, you get paid right. after you pay your supplier. If, they, if you have a big working capital problem, the acquirer is going to say, well, we're going to buy this business, but we're going to have to inject a ton of money in working capital, which means their appetite to buy and spend on your company goes down. Um, because all both the working capital and the amount they pay for your company comes from the same bank account. So the more they have to inject in working capital, the less they're willing to pay for you. And so it, it works a little like the kids teeter butter, you know, like again, more you've got to invest in working capital, the less the value, the opposite. Right. Right. Well, thank you for that. So, um, well, let's now turn to the third book in the trilogy. Uh, what, uh, what prompted you to write uh, the third book? Man, it sounds like you, you could have been my co-author. I, <laughs> I <think laughs> all those episodes. So I, uh, I, I did, I, again, I, I noticed that a lot of the people I've interviewed for built to sell radio. And again, these are all owners of companies generally selling businesses, you know, valued in the kind of two to $50 million range. Although we have some exceptions outside of that, it's generally in that space. So these are life-changing events for the owners, absolutely life-changing, but they don't show up on, you know, on any news feed or any media release. They're, they're relatively below the radar. And so what I kind of come to know is that for a lot of these owners, they exit at relatively, um, uh, you know, subdued multiples, relatively average multiples. And then there's this other cohort of owners. I would put James Murphy, the company I referenced earlier, Viviscal, he sold to C&D, into a second camp, which are people who seem to punch well above their weight, get valuations much, much higher than the average. Uh, again, Greg Carpenter from CBI, instead of getting 1.2 times revenue, he's getting like five or six times revenue. And so I wanted to understand, like, what are these guys doing? Um, what are they, how, what are their negotiation tactics? What are their tips and tricks for punching above their weight? And that's what I wanted to do in this new book is, to, is try to put together a bit of a, a field guide for entrepreneurs to follow. 
Okay. And uh, how, so it released what, about three or four weeks ago? It came out on January the 12th. Okay. And how's it, uh, how's it done so far? Going well. Yeah. I, I've actually got visibility into uh, the kind of sales numbers and it's tracking about where we're built to sell was at at the same time. So pretty, pretty happy with that. Just given the, the trajectory that built to sell has, has had over the years. Well, hopefully it'll be translated into 12 languages as well. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. So, um, what, um, uh, and then where can people buy this book? The usual, usual places, or would you rather they go to builttosell.com to buy it? And anywhere you, you, you like buying books is, is fine. If you happen to go to builttosell.com, we put together a, a special page um, called, which, which is builttosell.com slash selling, where folks can get some extra gifts if they order from that page. So that's just builttosell.com slash selling. Okay. So that's good. That's where they get the book. Um, and what uh, uh, have you, based on you know, feedback you've received, has there been anything that was particularly interesting or surprising on the feedback you've received that, that maybe uh, one of the stories resonated more than you might have expected? Or uh, what's, what's been the reaction? Yeah, I mean, look, I think one of the stories that really popped to mind for me because he had the worst of times and the best of times is a guy named Arik Levy. Arik is in the in the in a locker business. So if you've ever been to a, a Whole Foods and you see those Amazon lockers, that was that's the space that Arik is in. And he his first company was called Laundry Locker, where they put laundry, in particular dry cleaning laundry, into a locker for people who needed to pick it up after hours. Business was a success, but he decided he wanted to sell. And he got an offer and agreed to negotiate with one acquirer, which is one of the mistakes we we talk about in the book. He got an offer. The acquirer did the due diligence. About 60 days later, they started to retrade. Retrading is industry lingo for basically a bait and switch. They tried to lower the price that they'd agreed to pay in, in the LOI. And Arik, with no other offers on the table, agreed to the lower price. And then once they sort of nickel and dimed it down on the lower price, they then turned around and said, oh, we don't have the money to buy your company. We couldn't blow up from the bank, so we need to blow up for you, from you. And so Arik had to finance part of the sale of his business. They essentially financed the acquirers to buy his business. So it was a, it kind of a, a bad exit along, not a horrible exit, but there were some things that didn't go as well as he'd hoped. And so when he went to sell his second business, a company called luck for one also in the locker business, but in this case, lockers in a, you know Manhattan apartments for people to buy online, he learned everything there was to he kind of applied all the things he learned the first time around to the sale of Luxor. So went out, ran a, a process, got five offers for his company. And once he'd received those five offers, he started to play one off the other, trying to get them to raise their price in a successive series of negotiation. Well, he played them quite well because by the end, he was able to triple the original offers for his company, and he ultimately agreed to sell it. And it's just a, a good example of some of the the kind of tactics, in particular the importance of having multiple offers 
to essentially give you more leverage in the sale of your company is. So that's, that's one of many stories in the book. That's uh, yeah. I remember that, uh, that episode specifically because he was talking about this disconnect between, you know, people, people like to drop off their dry cleaning at the hours that the dry cleaners are not open, basically, you know, they like to drop off their dry cleaning on the way to work or on the way home from work. And, and if they work long hours, then the dry cleaner is not open then. And I believe that's what his laundry locker was trying to uh, address, right? That's, that's right. I mean, you think about people who, who wear like a dress shirt that needs to be pressed. Typically, they get in before nine and, <laughs> and leave after five, certainly. Um, and those are the hours a lot of dry cleaners are open. So it's kind of a disconnect. Like you either want to pick up your laundry before work or after work. Either time, you know, in the case of Arc Levy, he found that they were always closed. So <laughs> right. Fired. And then I think, and then his second business was like the lockers for the apartment complexes, right? To receive the That's right. packages and stuff, because it's. Uh, uh, it's been a while since I lived in in an apartment, but I can only imagine what it's like now with Amazon Prime and that these poor apartment leasing offices must just be, you know, without his service. I can just imagine they've just got boxes stacked to the ceiling and it's the same problem, right? The leasing office closes at five o'clock and the person doesn't get off work in time to go by the leasing office. And And these days, you know, in a pandemic, around the holiday season, it must have been just atrocious, right? Because, you know, all these boxes end up on the floor behind the, the desk and, you know, the, the apartment you know, owner has to come out and sift through dozens of boxes. It's a terrible experience. So in the case of Luxor One, the business that Arx sold the five offers, uh, he was able to uh, basically solve that problem for um, apartment um, dwellers uh, because he installed the walkers. Yeah, that's uh, I remember that story. That's uh, that's awesome. So uh, as we wrap up here, uh, my final question is one that I stole from Tim Ferriss. You know who Tim Ferriss is? I do. The full, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'm going to ask you and you're the first guest I've ever asked this. So uh, so if you had a metaphorical billboard that millions of entrepreneurs would see, what words or phrase would you put on it? Like if you're going to distill like all your wisdom that you know about selling your business uh, to distill it to a sentence or two, what might you say? Great question. I, I don't have anything kind of pithy and, and, and that would fit on a, on a billboard, but it would be <laughs> something along the lines of, of, of revenue is vanity. Value is sanity. Maybe something to that effect. This, this oh, I like that. Yeah, okay, maybe it's a little pithier than I thought it was going to be. Okay, so revenue is vanity, value is sanity. So it's a play on the you know the old revenue is vanity, uh, profit is sanity adage that accountants talk about a lot. Um, and of course, as entrepreneurs, I think we're often um, susceptible to kind of shiny ball syndrome and 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 going trying to trying to reach new top line sales you know thresholds because they you know they make us feel good and they make us proud and. We love boasting about how many people we employ or how many locations we have, et cetera. And, and I first just firsthand seen many, many examples where the owner of those businesses chasing revenue has given up a lot of equity, a lot of control, um, a lot of lifestyle benefits um, just to chase the next zero on their top line revenue. Yet it doesn't always translate 
into value. I'm reminded I, I did two episodes almost back to back. One was a guy who built a $15 million business. So a pretty, pretty good sized business over the years, but, but kind of chasing revenue, very seasonal in nature and sold it for 25% of one year's revenue. About a day later, I interviewed another guy named Rob Walling, who built a company called Drip, which was an email marketing platform he sold to lead pages. He built it up to just $2 million of annual revenue, like a dozen employees, small, small company in the grand scheme of things, and was entertaining offers between nine and 12 times revenue. Right. So the math is astonishing. Here's a business owner in the first case that has been running on a hamster wheel for years, sacrificing sleep for cash flow worries and, and, and hours from his family and so forth, just to try to hit the next top line revenue goal. And then Rob Walling, quiet, like toiling in a relative obscurity with a little 12 person company who sells for a multiple many, many, many times more than the guy chasing revenue. So it's not always the top line revenue that uh, that's the thing to chase. I, I don't believe in the, in owning a business. That is, uh, uh, that is great. And that's what I wrote down. I'm going to, I've never heard that, uh, that quote, but I'm going to remember that revenue is vanity. Value is sanity. That's, uh, that's great. There you go. Well, um, I really appreciate you taking time out to, to be on the show. Were there any questions that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? No, I mean, I think we, we covered a lot of ground and uh, I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to, to chat with you and, and your listeners. So I think we did, uh, we did a lot of uh, real estate today. So thank you for the opportunity. That is great. So if people uh, want to reach out to you or, or say hi, uh, what's the best way uh, to do so? Really, I mean, all roads lead to builttosell.com. So okay. builttosell.com, you can get the latest episodes, my social links. You know, you can opt in to uh, uh, to get an episode every week. Um, that's probably the best place to go. So yeah, just built to sell com. That is great. Well, I think that will uh, that will do it. Well, thank you again for for being on the podcast. I think uh, our listeners are really going to uh, enjoy uh, uh, your insight and your experience, and I uh, really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dave. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-discshow.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.